The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Researchers at Duke University's Center for Cognitive Neuroscience believe something else has been at work among species that have thrived throughout history. And in their new book called Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity, Drs. Brian Hare, or Drs. Uh, Brett Hare and uh, Vanessa Wood explore that theory. Dr. Hare is an award-winning neuroscientist at Duke University. He is a professor and evolutionary anthropology, psychology, and neuroscience. He's a published author. His work receives consistent national and international attention. He's been featured on 60 Minutes and in a documentary by Steven Spielberg. He also founded and co-directs the Duke Canine Cognition Center where they do some fascinating work. Dr. Brian Hare joins me this afternoon. Thanks for taking the time. Hey, Jalen, it's so nice to be with you. Nice to talk with you. My goodness, I think you have such a fascinating job, uh, fascinating work that you do, and I want to just dive in on this one. Um, when the whole survival of the fittest, uh, I think that's what everyone, you know, what I mentioned, everyone thinks it's the stronger, the one who can overpower the other. You have said that in your mind um, that survival of the fittest um has done the most harm of any folk theory that has penetrated society. Why do you believe that? Yeah, so I think the way that a lot of people think about survival of the fittest and evolution is it means the big, mean, tough guy like you were uh, in your great introduction mm-hmm. explaining, and that sometime, or somehow that uh, because the big, tough individuals are the ones that deserve everything and are somehow winning and therefore may even be superior, uh, that then that informs all sorts of things about how we govern each other, what, uh, how we distribute resources or think about justice. Um, and that's just a total misconstrual of uh, evolutionary theory. Uh, really, all that's meant by fitness is how successful you are with having offspring. And as biologists, what we see again and again is that friendliness allows for new forms of cooperation and that if you have a new form of friendliness, species that have uh, friendliness in their nature are often the most successful. And there's just overwhelming evidence that friendliness is the way to win in life's game. And wanted to talk to you about this and explore that uh, a whole lot more. What made you start thinking this way and, and what made you want to explore it uh, further and, and, and put it into a book? Well, it's really it's funny, funny you ask that. The uh, uh, exhibit A of how friendliness is really the winning strategy in life is our dogs. So uh, I study dog psychology, and I'm really interested in why dogs are so good at understanding us and communicating with us. And we, through decades of work now, have shown that really it's domestication uh, that causes dogs to... Uh, be so good at uh, being our best buddies and what domestication is and we've been able to uncover this as well it is actually selection for friendliness so dogs where there are hundreds of millions of them now all over the world uh, their success as they evolve from wolves is because they became friendlier 
So how did uh, a feared predator like a like a wolf turn into something that we let sleep and cuddle in our beds with us? How did that happen, do you think? Yeah, well, I know what didn't happen, first off, which is um, <laughs> often the story is told that, you know, we recreate, we created dogs in our own image. We grabbed some wolves and we're like, wouldn't it be great to create dogs? I don't think that happened. And the reason is because we know that from genetic evidence that dogs began evolving from wolves 25,000 years ago. There were no plants that had uh, been uh, planted by people. Everybody was living as a, a hunter-gatherer or a foraging, uh, uh, were, you know, subsisting through foraging. And so the idea that you're going to go grab some wolf puppies that you're going to have to feed and then are going to grow up to hang around camp with your kids while you go get food for them, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. So I don't think that's how dogs even <laughs> Instead, what we think is that as humans became more successful and more sedentary, so we didn't move around as much, we did what we still do today very, very well, is we create a lot of garbage. And what is uh, one species garbage is another species gold. And wolves that were able to approach us uh, at night, I'm sure, in the beginning, uh, and were able to use the resources that we were creating, uh, they would have a major advantage uh, because our garbage uh, would be a reliable source of food that was really not very risky to get access to. And they would uh, outcompete potentially the other wolves where, who were sort of living in the normal wolfy way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's how we think dogs happen because we have experiments when you select friendliness in animals. They end up having floppy ears and curly tails and all the other things <laughs> that we think of that, you know, we attribute to domestication. Dr. Brian Hare joining me this afternoon. Now, um, as well as focusing on, on dogs in, in, in your research, um, because as we mentioned that you founded the Duke Canine Cognition Center, uh, you also studied bonobos. Is that how you say it? Bonobos? Um, you got they're it. The, you got it. Absolutely. Yeah, Bonomos, they're the are human's closest genetic relative. They are um, apes that are often confused with chimpanzees, but uh, bonobos, bonobos and chimpanzees are, are very different, uh, especially when the friendly theater uh, uh, theory comes into play. Can you explain that? Can you can you expand on that for us? That'd be fun. So uh, bonobos and chimpanzees are like having two first cousins. One's a girl, one's a boy. They're equally related to you, but they're different from each other. And that's the case with bonobos and chimpanzees. Um, so chimpanzees are famous uh, through Jane Goodall and her wonderful work and all the other people who study them. They, uh, the more we study them, though, the more we found how similar they are to us in terms of their ability for aggression. They even uh, can murder one another. Um, on the flip side, bonobos, uh, no bonobo has ever been observed to kill another bonobo. Uh, and we know that uh, bonobo males, instead of attacking their mothers and trying to dominate the group and become alpha, um, they actually spend their entire life trying to be their mother's best friend. And their mothers, uh, mother, uh, female bonobos and mother bonobos, then work together to prevent any male bonobo from trying to dominate the group. Uh, and as a result, no baby bonobos are ever killed, and there's no um, fighting between different bonobo groups where they get seriously hurt. Uh, and, of course, in chimpanzees, 
uh, you know, all sorts of terrible things happen because they're alpha males, um, and males are constantly trying to dominate everybody. So uh, in looking at bonobos and thinking about how dogs evolve from wolves because of becoming friendlier, um, we think the same process happened in bonobos, and we have some um, really nice evidence for that. But one of the really cool things that's so counterintuitive and going back to how powerful friendliness is as a force in life is it ends up that the most successful bonobo male, the friendliest bonobo male, has more offspring than the most <laughs> successful alpha chimpanzee. So mm. the mean brute who's dominating the group and forcing himself on females and potentially killing other chimpanzees, he doesn't leave as many offsprings as the friendly mama's boy bonobo who doesn't do any of those bad things. Um, you have said that for humans to continue to evolve successfully, friendliness is the winning strategy, that social problems require social solutions. Um, you say when that mechanism is turned off, we can become unbelievably cruel. When it's turned on, it allows us to win. We win by cooperation and teamwork. That our uniquely human skills for cooperative communication can be also used to solve the hardest social problem. My question, though, for you, doctor, is can it be? The, the world is more divisive than ever right now how do we apply this to move forward to make things better to make communication better to make our social interactions better because you've seen it you've you've witnessed it you know it as well as i do things are pretty crappy out there right now well, we certainly feel crappy, um, both psychologically <laughs> and physically. I don't disagree with you, and I don't want to lead you to think that uh, anything's going to be easy. Uh, but I do think that understanding that friendliness wins and then using animals to help us understand ourselves gives us a really powerful lens to see that our species, too, is built for friendliness. Our brains are built for friendliness. We have a neurobiological network that um, rewards us for our social interactions. We need uh, and enjoy uh, one another. And uh, one of the things that makes our species so special is and, and uh, sort of remarkable, even compared to very social bonobos and chimpanzees, is the fact we have a new type of social category. We have a new type of social partner, which is the, a stranger, someone we've never met before, who we see as part of our group. No other mm. species does that. We have this unbelievable ability to see a complete stranger as like us, as among our group that we can instantly be friends with. I hope everybody listening feels that way about me, even if I'm an American. <laughs> the, so, so we have this unbelievable ability um, and it allows us to cooperate with a larger number of people. It means that we can cooperate and communicate, uh, have compassion and empathy for people we've never, uh, we didn't grow up with. Chimpanzees and bonobos can't do that. No other species can do that. Um, so it, it, it's this incredible friendliness towards strangers. But, the, but it's exactly what you said, the same mechanism. The exact same mechanism in the brain, that same brain network that allows for this unusual and, and powerful friendliness, it can shut down. And when it shuts down, uh, it leads us to um, see strangers or individuals from other groups that have different identity as um, being uh, threatening, as being uh, something to be afraid of, and in the worst cases, uh, it leads us to see them as not even fully human. 
And that's what then allows for our worst and most cruel uh, behaviors. I'm Dr. Brian Hare. Joining me this afternoon, new book is called Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. Dr. Hare, a question from one of my listeners this afternoon says, and, and just, uh, it says, if friendliness is the winning strategy, can, can you explain why some of the most wealthy and successful people in the world are also the biggest jerks in the world? <laughs> and I suggested that it depends on, I guess, maybe on what you think success is. Uh, that that's interesting. Interesting question. Well, let me let me go back to the you were you asked me the previously also. Let me combine an answer to that question. Your previous okay. question, which is sort of what's the solution? And once you know there's this mechanism where we are built for friendliness and it can turn off. Um, and it's sort of a dog answer to this question. If we had a dog and we wanted to make sure it would be confident out in public and not scared and fearful and then maybe even aggressive towards strangers. Uh, what would we do to make sure that the dog we were getting would be confident in public? Well, I think the answer is we would be really active in its socialization. And when it was young, we would make sure that it meets all sorts of different people that are not like us, uh, lots of people it might meet as an adult. And if it meets people that uh, a whole diverse range of people and maybe even is friends with some uh, people that are not like the people it lives with, it's going to be much more likely to be confident as an adult and not be aggressive towards strangers. The same stories with us. There's overwhelming evidence that the mechanism in our brain that leads to friendliness, uh, it's, it's sort of immunized against switching off. When we have cross-group friendships, when we have friends across groups of different identities, uh, it, these, it, these types of friendships really provide... Um, a bridge uh, where even the most intolerant people, uh, maybe these rich people that your reviewer thinks is a jerk, <laughs> um, even those people uh, are not likely to dehumanize others if they have cross-group friendships. So um, I think it also depends, it's not just how we define success, it also defend, depends on how we define um, uh, jerk, because what I'm most <laughs> worried about is in a liberal democracy like Canada, the United States, we cannot afford to dehumanize people we disagree with. Uh, disagree with them, yes. Uh, you know, have vitriol in our debate, maybe. It's unfortunate. But dehumanize, that has to stop, uh, because that leads to violence. And Dr. Hare, I'm, I'm out of time and uh, I'm bummed about that because I wanted to ask you some questions specifically about, uh, about uh, uh, animals, about smart species, about your work that you have done on analyzing dogs and what breeds know what. I was just, uh, I was just captivated uh, by one of your uh, talks on YouTube the other, uh, the other day. I'm hopeful maybe we can chat again sometime and we can explore we'll that. But again. for right now, yes, we're going to have to leave it here for right now. But I, I appreciate you taking the time to join us this afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Brian Hare, uh, the new book is called Survival of the Friendliest. You might also know his other book, The Genius of Dogs, which is a New York Times bestseller. His website, brianhare.net, and Hare is H-A-R-E. He has done some really, really interesting work on on looking at the intelligence of species. And uh, as we go into break, he says... If I'm asked what species is the smartest, he says that's like asking which tool is better, the hammer 
or the screwdriver. He reminds us that evolution has designed animals to solve critical problems, and each of them have different types of intelligence specific to them. And it was it was fascinating and also has, has studied 75 different breeds of dogs. You know, you see these lists all the time that says, oh, the most confident, the most friendliest, the most whatever. Some of his work into that shows that not one dog tops that list like we see so much. Anyway, interesting stuff. You can, if you if you have time, Google his stuff on YouTube. Sit back, grab some popcorn, read. Uh, sit back and, and just listen a little bit to what he has to say about that one.